Thank you for listening to a Christ Church Showman. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3. As was stated, we're excited to celebrate with a bunch of food. And the Lord blesses that, blesses food and flavors and gives us food to, to feast as a gift. Christians are people who love the gifts of God and enjoy the gifts of God. And so afterwards, as Brandon stated, what we're going to do after the tables are set up, this uh, we're all going to go get our food down that way and then return with our food up this way. And there'll be tables set up in here and all that food you'll be able to find. And the smells, I'm sure, will, will start seeping up here. And you'll be wanting me to get done very quickly here in just a little bit. So last week we covered all of Hebrews 11. Today we're just covering the first three verses of chapter 12. If you're new with us, we're going through the book of Hebrews. That's our commitment is to preach God's word, not use the word to preach. So I don't want to come up here with any clever creative title and give you a million different verses to say what I want the scriptures to say. Not that that ever happens. But what we want to do is to be faithful to say what God's word has for us. We want to proclaim God's word, not use the word to proclaim the fancies of a preacher. So we want to be faithful to do that. So that's our attempt when we go through the books of the Bible is just to say, here's what God has to say. This is the platter, the feast for you. And we're going to go to this, believe it, love it, and run with it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Sermon title this morning is Run, Look, Consider. Run, Look, Consider. Turn your eyes there with me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Men, let's follow our gender-specific commands and raise hands to a holy God. Father, we come to you. We ask for blessing upon the preaching of your word. We come as humble servants and we sit at the feet of our master. And God, I join my brothers and sisters feasting on your words. We want to taste and see that you're good here this morning. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we hear from you. We are inundated with messages that are counter everything you have to say. And we're inundated with those messages every day, almost incessantly. And so we lay those things down and we come to get a holy filter this morning for all the stuff that's out there. We come to Hear your words, we come to get the truth, we come to receive from you all that you have for us, and we come to respond to you in the way you would have us respond. We thank you for each living soul here this morning, created in your image. If there's any one person in here that doesn't know you, the truth that we're proclaiming this morning is that enemies can become friends of God, that sinners can be forgiven of their sins. And so, God, I pray that that message would be loud and clear into the hearts of people this morning. For your children this morning, help us to run with endurance. Help us to look to Jesus. Help us to consider him. I trust you're going to. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are surrounded by heroes, living and dead. 
Last week we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrews hall of faith. And we looked at all these names of men and women who lived by faith. Ancient heroes, and yet there's modern heroes as well. We think about the names that we know that will go written down in history. A hundred years from now, Gospel Coalition will be long forgotten. But people like John MacArthur, people like Douglas Wilson, these are names. People like, like Jeff Durbin, these are names of people that they will be reading about a hundred years from now. Men and women of courage who stood when everybody else bowed down. A few years ago, I watched Doug Wilson's documentary, The Free Speech Apocalypse. It was inspiring. Because in this documentary, he was mercilessly mocked and ridiculed. And yet, in that time, he maintained a jovial attitude. He maintained firm conviction. And there was joy in the midst of all this opposition and hostility. And he kept doing what he was doing in the face of that opposition. It built courage. Jordan and I were watching it and thinking, this is the kind of, you know, you can laugh at the mockery that comes your way. It builds courage. When you watch The Patriot, you see Benjamin Martin, the fictional character, run up the hill and it fires you up. You know, you watch The Patriot and those kind of images, they build courage. They have a way of building courage within you. When William Wallace gives his speech or screams freedom or is, as he's being impelled, uh, you, you, you feel like you're, it's like you're there and you're wanting to do whatever you can to vindicate what's happening You're ready to die for freedom. When you hear about Elizabeth Elliot moving into the village of the very men who killed her husband, and the very man who killed her husband later becomes a Christian and an elder at that local church, it builds courage. When you see men like John MacArthur standing in the face of opposition in California, you're like, oh, all right. MacArthur can be crotchety in some ways, but I want to be like him. Okay? Like, God, may I be like him one day. That courage... It's just amazing. It builds courage. Sorry to speak disparagingly. I I love John MacArthur, but when he talks about charismatics, I tell you what, man, he can get a little crotchety. But he says some good things. I love him. Courage, though. It's courage. You get fired up. You're like, yes, 82 years old. I hope I've got fire in my seat, you know, that I'm able to do what God's called me to do. Fire in my seat. That's something I made up today. But I hope I'm fired up like that when I'm in my 80s. Courage. These stories of men and women in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11, they're intended to fire you up, to put fire in your seats, to get you going, to get you motivated. Look, you come from a long line of men and women who are able to stand and face opposition and do that with joy, who were able to do what God's called them to do in the quiet, timid times culturally where Christianity was accepted and normal who are able to be faithful in those moments as well. We come from a long line of brothers and sisters in Christ who are living by faith. And these stories are intended to motivate us towards holiness. Story of ancients and modern heroes that get us excited and motivated to say, you know what, by the grace of God, they lived with courage and honesty before God and others. And that's how I want to live as well. Each of these stories are testimonies of God's grace and his work in real lives, real people. And they're stories that help us see the glory of the work of Christ. You know, when you think about these biblical heroes like we talked about, these biblical heroes are all the, like they're, they're archetypes, they're, they're stories of redemption, fall, and all these things that go into to each of the stories. And you see that they're all pointing to, and they're pointing outside of, the one that would come, Jesus. Jesus is truly the true and better, as we sang about last week, true and better of every single biblical hero. And they are heroes, but they're all pointing to the great hero. 
And so what the author is anticipating, the author of Hebrews is anticipating in us as we hear these stories of faith, both the victory and this apparent real victory, a victory through by way of battle and God's people move forward, or victory by way of suffering well and being sawn in two and yet maintaining faith, what the author is anticipating is fire, motivation, that you're going to read these and think, yes, I will endure. I will run the race that's set before me. I will do what God's called me to do. That is what it's there for, to inspire, to build. So this morning we want to hear it and let's roll. I mean, let's do this. <laughs> like, let's do what God's called us to do. We've already been walking this race and running this race. This is motivation to continue on and run this race as God would have us. Verse 1 starts off talk, talking about this great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we are surrounded right now. As they were, so are we. And even so many more cloud of witnesses. When you think about the saints of God that have gone before us, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Those that are witnesses to the faithfulness of God. In both victory and as the world would say, defeat, they are witnesses to the glory of the King. And in light of these men and women of faith, you look back and you read these names, all these names, this huge list of names that we talked about last week. We hear that, we're inspired, and now the author's going to give us some direction. In light of this great cloud of witnesses, I'm going to have some stuff for you. Here's how you channel that motivation. Here's how you walk, and here's what you do after you're motivated, after you're fired up, after you're collectively saying, yeah, let's roll. Here's what you do with that. Here's where it goes. Here's where it's directed. It's going to look different in each one of us, but here's what you do with it. You're going to have some struggles along the way and the road marked out for you by the Lord and they're going to be unique to you and others are going to have struggles marked out for them and their road as they're running the race. But here's the direction. Here's where you need to be going. Here's what you need to do with all this pent up energy and excitement. This is how you channel it. This is how you direct it. Look at the second half of the verse. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us also, the implication is, these men and women of faith had obstacles to overcome. They had weights to overcome, and they had sin to overcome. And with the Lord's help, they were able to lay aside some of, not all of, but they were able to lay aside weights and sins and run the race that God had for them. And in the same way they did, the expectation is those who are hearing now, especially that you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, let us also do what they did. We're, we're walking in their footsteps. It's the road marked out for them. There's a story in a book that I'd read that talked about going to this island and walking the path of the ancient bear. The bear that lived on this island for centuries. And these bears, dad bear, grandpa bear, great grandpa grizzly bear, walked this road and this road or path was so marked out and it had been marked out for centuries of grandpa brown bear, great-grandpa brown bear, walking the same path. And there is a path for us. It's going to look different, but it's the same road. It's the road of faith. And we're going to be walking down this. And as we look back, there is a great cloud of witnesses of those who have walked that road and they've ran through oppositions and they've done what God's called them to do. And so let us also do what they did. Lay aside every weight and every single sin that clings so closely. So let's work through these words. What is a weight and what is a sin that clings so closely? When you think of, of weight, don't first think of physical weight. Okay, that's going to be included in this. But think of spiritual weight. So when you're thinking about a weight, a weight is a hindrance that is weighing you down from obedience. Okay? Now, the, the, like if I put on a weight vest, 
a couple years ago, it was uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, and Zach Easton gave me level three body armor front and back, okay? Isn't that so Zach, you know? And so I got this body armor, and now we're doing this Murph challenge, and I'm wanting to build up to, to be able to do all this, this weight. But I'll tell you what, I've been, you know, as we've been doing this push-up stuff, and if you're not in this push-up stuff yet, you ought to think about getting in this guy's group. We're doing the, the Murph challenge, hopefully, some are. Um, we're doing all these push-ups. And so I put this weight on, and I did these push-ups. And I tell you what, push-ups are a lot harder when you add 20 or however many. It's probably more like 80, 80 pounds, I would say, uh, or 20. Um, and you're doing these push-ups, it's harder because you got this weight on you, okay? It's a weight. Now, spiritually, what, what is a weight then? What, what are we talking about here? Because he's not talking about a weighted vest given by Zach Easton. It's not talking about strapping on that weighted vest every single day. What he's talking about is something that's there holding you back in your spiritual life that if it wasn't there, you'd be running with endurance. It would be easier for you. And so we're, we're to lay this weight aside, let us lay aside every weight and sin. So when you think about a hindrance to you, you start thinking about things that can be good, that, are, that can be a weight, can be sin. Some of these are morally neutral. We'll get into sins and this distinction here in just a minute. But here's some of the things that we carry in life that, that some of you, again, again, as we think about the struggles that we have or the, the directions that our sin propensities bring us, some of these are going to hit you more than others. Some of you need to let go of the weight of sloth. Now, sleep is a very good thing, right? It's a good thing. Some, like when you have young children, like, yes. Or after a camping trip, Daniel knows what I'm talking about. After a camping trip and frigid temperatures, sleep is very good the next night. You know, it's like you, you want to sleep because you don't sleep very well when you're out and you give your blanket to your son who's cold. It, there's, okay, sleep's a good thing. It's a gift from the Lord. But what can, what can happen with sleep? Well, the Proverbs warn about this. A little sleep, a little slumber. Some things go bad when you begin to love sleep. And it can be a weight or a sin propensity that you're drawn to, the sin of sloth. Lay aside the weight and sin that clings so closely. Some of you need to let go of the weight of sloth. Some of you need to let go of the weight of being a workaholic. Workaholic gets you, being a workaholic gets you praise and, and admiration. From everyone except family and God. It'll get you praise. It'll get you an attaboy. And there's so much virtue in work that it can be defended. Workaholic. We don't exactly know biblical terms of, of you know, there's no 40-hour work week. We're told six days you shall work. That, that's, that, that's literal. That means we should be working six days. And then we have a rest day. Lord's Day. So six days you shall work. Now, most of our jobs out here, formally, you have five days of work that you're remunerated for. And then that fifth or that seventh, sixth day, whatever it is, there's always work to do. There's always a project to be done. There's always something to do outside in the yard. There's always something to do. And that's, that's work. That's how we live. Work. But when work is idolized, what ends up happening is you can use work and neglect a lot of other things that God's called you to neglect. And convince yourself it's okay because I'm, I'm doing this for, for family. I'm doing this for friends. Or I'm doing this for, for my grandkids. Or I'm doing this for fill in the blank, whoever it is. Some need to let go of the obsession with hobbies. That can be a weight. Hobbies are not a bad thing. Others need to let go of the guilt of having a hobby. Hobbies can be wonderful things. And some of us need to stop thinking, well, I'm going to obey God 
when I get this next thing done, then I'll, that, that will kickstart obedience to the Lord. I'll give time, energy, money, whatever it may be to this particular need. When I get this thing done, weight, spiritual weight. For others, your weight is your weight. Unhealthy living, eating, exercise, or the obsession of those things where your obsession is over crazy bodily training. Paul tells us that bodily training is of some value. There's some value there. And it's not ultimate value. These weights are things that you can look at and say, these are good things. These aren't, none of these things are necessarily bad. But these can be, they can be weights for us that hold us back from what God has called us to do. There are things in life that are ethically, morally, in a neutral category. You think about video games. Video games, for my generation, have been the easiest thing for older generations to mock and ridicule. I've never played video games. I have a little bit here and there, but just never been into video games. And my confession here is because I'm not good at it. I don't like doing things that I'm not good at. That's why I can't roller skate. I'm not good at it. If you want to have something funny, get a video of me roller skating. And it's like wobbly twig legs out there. And uh, just, they're either my legs or I'm riding a chicken, one of the two. And uh, out there, so I, I never played, and, you know, some people really love video games. And uh, now it's interesting because it used to be like this generational thing where it was mainly my generation. But now, you know, my generation now, like that's called the, the, the breakdown. You have the, the greatest generation. That was the boomers' parents. Then you have the boomers. Then you have Gen X, the small little group of so-called rebels that love everything the government has to say now. And then uh, now the millennials after that who the joke is we can't do anything, you know. And all of these generations have these stereotypes that are wrapped around it. Then there's Gen Z. All these, and, and these stereotypes, generally speaking in broad strokes, are, are kind of true. Like, they're, they're kind of true. Um, and, and they're pretty broad. But now, my generation is getting to where we're actually at grandparent age. You know, the oldest millennials now are having gra- their grandbabies. They're, they're in their early 40s, and, and that's, that's a, a new thing. And yet, all these stereotypes that go out there... Um, Video games, whatever it may be from your era, there are things in your era that are really, really popular. You know, the Gen Xers, they like grunge rock, you know? Like, they're uh, the Pearl Jam folks. And uh, music is a good thing, right? Like, there's nothing... But, but, but music can be this thing, this obsession, that it takes over your life. I met a guy one time that always lamented the fact that he wasn't in a band. He was like five years older than me. I'm like, brother, you got a family. Like, if you were 21, like... Okay, but you got a family and you're lamenting all the time to your family talking about why you're not in a band and how, how you know hurt you are that you're not in a band. I'm like, bro, grow up. And so these generational sins that can be, these are weights. These are things in our life that can be weights. They can become a weight. Entertainment, because our societies are built around entertainment, I mean, there are people that just can't live without entertainment to entertainment. To, this is the dopamine hit, entertainment. So, I mean, we, people talk about, well, you, you know, uh, do you understand people's, you know, uh, attention span? It, it's just it's just shrinking and it's getting smaller and smaller. Well, how about Christians? Let, let's do something and live in a little bit different way. Let's read some books instead of watching so much movies. Instead of being dummies running around, let's train our kids to be smart. Let's train our kids to be readers. Not that movies are necessarily bad, but we don't have to be entertained to death. That's one thing about church, that churches come along. It's like, okay, people can't be bored. I don't care if you're bored. I don't care if your kids are bored. We're not here to be entertained. It's just, that's just not why we come here. We come here to honor the king, 
The things of God should be enjoyable to us. They should cut at times, but we're not here to entertain. And entertainment can be one of these weights. When you think about things like alcohol, gift of the Lord, that can so easily become a weight for people. Social media, it can be an easy, it's just a weight. You look at your, your time on your phone. Just Does anybody else just long for pre-internet days or like pre-cell phone days? It's like, this stinking thing is more of a curse than a blessing. You know, how great would it be if you just had a phone on your wall and you could go to Walmart and if you forget something, you just go up to the, the help desk and say, honey, what was it I was supposed to get and where is it? Because inevitably that happens, right, men? You get there and you're like, now where is this? How does my wife do this? So there are things in life we need to lay aside. In your life, there's going to be different propensities or sin propensities that are just holding you back. What is it? Okay, lay it aside. Lay that aside. There are some things that are in stages of life that you can do. There are things that you can do in retirement you couldn't do when you're a younger man or a younger woman. There are things that you, you do when you were younger that you can't do when you're older. And so there are some things that you're just going to have to lay aside. The weight that's holding you back from running the race assigned by you to you by God. What about sin? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Lay aside sin. Sin clings closely. Sin is like a stage 1000 clinger. It's everywhere, man. Sin will sneak up on you. It will text you. It will call you. It'll pull on your hip or your shirt, your jacket. It's always stopping by unexpected. It's always coming over unannounced. It's sin is dressed in camo. You can't even see it at times. Then voila, it shows up. It whispers your name. Come this way. Sometimes it shouts with its temptations. But sin is stinking everywhere. It clings so closely. It holds on. You think about things that are, are clingers, you know, there's the, the joke about the stage five cleaner, clinger kind of girl that's just always clinging to the guy. And, and sin is this thing where it's just always just lingering around. It's just, it's just chasing you. It's always at your heels. Just always, you stand still for a minute and everything's going good. And all of a sudden what rises up inside of you when somebody cuts you off or when something doesn't go the way you planned it to go in your day. Okay, when somebody does the same thing they said they weren't going to do again. When betrayal comes or something happens where it's understandable that you can be very angry or upset. There's this sin. It's always there. And it's always, it's just, it's always there by you clinging on and holding on. And it's like, ah, ah, sin. It's just, it's just always there. And Paul, or excuse me, the author of Hebrews, is like, just lay it to the side. Well, that sounds easy. Just lay it down. Okay, the sin that's clinging, just, just like take it off and just lay it to the side like the weights that are holding you back. Just take it off, lay it to the side, and then just leave it there. Okay, the question is, all right, how? Like it's a clear command. You're dealing with things that are holding you back in your Christian walk. Are you dealing with sin? Just lay it aside. All right, well, I mean, that sounds pretty easy, but how? I mean, that's the, the question I think a lot of people have is we know the right thing to do. The hard part is actually living it out, right? I mean, everyone... Generally speaking, in situations, as you're living the Christian life and you're filled with the Spirit and you've got the wisdom that you get in the Proverbs and throughout the Bible, principles that you know, generally speaking, you could give people good counsel about what the right and wrong thing is to do. If you're in God's Word, you're, you're sharp. You know the right thing to do. In marriage, you know, a lot of marital conflicts, it's like you know the right thing to do. The hard part is loving my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The hard part is implementation 
of the things God calls you to do. So Paul's, or the author of Hebrews is like, lay, just lay it aside. Lay it aside, okay? But please, let's get a little bit, how do I lay it aside? Well, there's more directives here. Remember, we are, we are getting direction. We are channeling the excitement that we got from Hebrews 11, these, hero, these, these heroes of the faith. And we're wanting to run like them, and we're wanting to like them, lay these things aside. So let's get some more direction. This, like several other passages, you think about Colossians chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, I believe. As we believed in him, so walk in him. Um, there are lessons that we take with us and that never leave. And I want this to be a lesson that never leaves for us. We just think about this. It's, just a, it's a good text to memorize. We just come back to this. Lay aside every weight and sin. And then we're told this. And let us run with endurance the race set before us. So how are we to lay aside every sin and weight that clings so closely? By running. By running. By running the race that God has set out for us. When we are to run this race with endurance. So here's what it looks like. If this is the sin, we take it. If this is the weight, here's the sin, here's the weight. We take it and we set it down and leave it there and run. I'm running away from it. I'm going to run. This, this is the race that God has laid out for me. I'm running away from this sin and this weight. And that means you can do whatever it takes to run away from that sin and that weight. And it said we are to run the race with endurance. And it's the race that God has set before us. And God uses this athletic analogy. Running the race that's set forth before us. So what, when you think about a race, you think about a race, there's a goal and there's a prize. A race is directional. There's, there's steps that you have to go through to win the race. There's rules and regulations to how a race works. You can be disqualified from a race. A race requires endurance. If you're going to make it to the end, then you've got to endure. I mean, you run through the sweat. You run through the pain. You run through whatever, the blood. You run. A race requires it. It includes temptations to quit. You know, sometimes it feels like that sin and that weight that you've laid down, it's like running with you. You know, it's like right back here. This is like, you know, have you ever thought, I wonder how far I could run. I do this. When I'm running, I'm like, okay, there's a lion behind me, and if the lion catches me, I die, and there'd be some life insurance for my family, but my family won't have me anymore. So I'm like, I am never quitting. You know, this imaginary lion right behind me. And maybe you're not like me, and you don't think about how far you could run if a lion was back there, because I think, you know, if, if a lion was chasing me, I probably could run a marathon. You know what I mean? Like, probably would run a 100-miler with Cam Haynes or something, you know? Like, whatever it took, uh, there's a lion behind me. But you think about the race, there's temptations to quit that come. And there's got to be things that motivate you to keep going. You, you have your eyes fixed on the prize, but you have these things that motivate you, even in a physical race. Okay, there's a line behind me. If it dies, I'm gonna, it's going to kill me. So I'm going to keep running, keep running, keep pounding that pavement. In the Christian life, it's like that. It's like a race. We have to endure. We have to keep going. We have to run. There's a race that's set before us, and it's set before us by God. The Christian life. What is the race that's set before us. It is this thing we call the Christian life. It's lifelong obedience in the one same direction. We're obeying the Lord. Okay, we're reading the scriptures. For it's discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Okay, I'm a son and God is my father. And he's going to discipline me. And he's going to train me. We're going to look at this next week. The discipline of the Lord. And he's training me. And he's building me. And he's shaping me. And in this Christian walk. 
the race that's set before me, there are things that God wants me to do. There are commands that God has given me, even just in the New Testament. Commands that God has given me that are required of me, and I am called to obey these commands. And in, in doing so, as I obey the Lord, I'm running the race that God has set for me. The commands of God, the mission of God. I'm not living for my glory. I'm living for the glory of my king, and I'm a witness of his glory, and I want to tell you all about it. And if you're around me long enough, you hang out with me from, from the gas station, the times that I rub shoulders with non-believers, you hear me talking to people about Jesus. I, 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 want, I want them to know the glory of Jesus. It, there's things that I repeatedly do when I talk to him. Hey, are you a Christian? Like, yeah, no, you, d- d- differing responses. Um, what does it mean? To be a Christian. We, I just a while back, just here in this church building, we had somebody here, and we were just talking about the differences between religion and Christianity, uh, lay out the cross. This is it's an easy thing to do, just telling people about Jesus. We're living out the commandments of God, which is the mission of God for us. This is the race that's set before us, and there is a lot of good work to do. A lot of good work to do. And friends, we've been doing this. If you look back in your life, you've been walking and running the race set before you. This is inevitable for all Christians. There is no opting out of the race that's set before us. Every Christian walks this road. We obey the Lord. There's going to be times that God disciplines us and sons and, and course corrects us and we step off and we veer and God's like, no, 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 no. There's this cattle prod that comes, holy cattle prod, and, and it pushes us back in the right direction. Like, no, 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 no. And sometimes in the exact same day, right? I'm like walking the course that God set by and I'm just like, Whoop, what's this? And then, oh, no, okay, I need it right here. What's this? And, and yet, this is how we live. And, and this is for all of us, what we've been doing. This isn't some new concept, like, now I'm going to start running the race set before me. This is what you have been doing, and what God's calling you con- to continue to do. And so we live out. We have to endure. We have to push through the pain. And as we run, we're running with intention. So we're, we're going to summarize all this at the end. There's just an, a neat bullet point summary at the end. And this all builds together, okay? Lay aside... Every weight weight and sin and run the race set before you. And as you're running, this is so beautiful. As you're running, you're to fix your eyes. You're to do something. There's a command here for you to obey. A part of your running includes this command. Here's what it says. Verse 2, second part. Looking to Jesus. Okay, verse 2, excuse me. Verse 2, the first part. Which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder of and the perfecter of our faith. In races, you'll have, if you've ever seen a marathon or ever run in a race, you have people, you have drink stations where you can either get drinks or a banana or somebody will run alongside and you'll give your drink. You know, you, you do your, your drink and you eat your banana, whatever it may be. You have these, these, these things that help you along the way to stay hydrated, to stay energized, to give you a little bit of calories and energy and, and all of that. And th- this is a holy glass of Gatorade or, or, or water for, this is just, th- this is where we're fixing our eyes. As we're running this Christian life with the commands of God, direct your attention somewhere. You're looking somewhere. You're looking ahead. We're looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen. That's where we're looking. We're intentionally trying to obey this command every day in your life. You have things given to you by God to do. And every day it, it looks almost identical. Some of our lives, I love routine. Some of you don't like routine as much. But every day you're called whatever you eat, drink, or do, do all to the glory of God. As you are living the commands of God in your life, 
obeying the Lord, this is what you want your, your eyes fixed on. Again, this is not just a lesson that we learned this week and we move on to the next week. These are things that we've been doing, needing to do, and will always do. Fixing your, your eyes on Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. As we lay aside the weight and sin, as we run the race of the Christian life, we look to Jesus. Our eyes are fixed on the prize. We look to our Savior and King, Jesus. We read about Him. We think about Him. We thank Him. We worship Him. We celebrate Him. These are all ways that we look to Him. And why are we to look to Jesus? Why is it that we're to look to him? Because there's great truth that's told to us in this verse. We're looking to Jesus and we are told that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The founder and the, per- and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who starts it. He's the one who finishes our faith. This is freedom in your race. This is freedom here. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We touched on this a little bit last week. The starter, the finisher of your faith. Where did your faith come from? Well, if he's the author of it, it didn't start with me. I'm not the author of my faith, nor the finisher of my faith. Again, this is the dividing line between the true gospel and false doctrine. The false gospel. The false gospel says, you start your faith and you finish your faith. Every religion of the world. Some people want to hijack false gospels and bring it into the Christian faith and say, and the Christian message is the exact same. Christianity starts with you and your faith. It's all up to you. It's all up to your will and your decisions. The Bible doesn't say that at all. Your will and decisions are corrupt in bondage. You're walking around in a prison called the sinful life. And you don't want out. And Jesus started your faith. He authored it, penned it. And he's perfecting our faith. Meaning, we didn't start it. Saving faith does not originate in the human being. It's like the command to a person... Fly today without an airplane. Go out and fly. Well, I can't fly. When we declare to people, have faith, they can't. They can't. They're dead. They're in bondage. They don't want it. And that's exactly how you were. It's exactly how I was. There is no such thing as a person out there who has the ability to fly without mechanical devices. And there's no single person out there that has saving faith in and of themselves. And anyone who says otherwise is not of a different theological camp with all humility. I would say this according to God's word. They're just wrong. And praise God we're not saved by our theological precision, right? I... I stand with brothers and sisters in Christ who proclaim a similar gospel as the rest of the world and saying that it's all up to you. No, it's not. If it's all up to me, I'd be burning in hell. I would have never trusted in the Lord. But praise God, Jesus has done something for me. He did something in me 
and he's doing something in me now, and he's never going away. He's never going to give up on me. He's never going to abandon me because he authored my faith and he is the finisher of my faith. This isn't up to me or my willpower or exertion. This is up to God and his mercy upon me. And that's the same with you. For 15 years, I've been preaching God's grace. If this isn't true, there is no grace to speak of. All there is, is earning from God. Friends, we're told here, faith is given from on high. It doesn't come from us. There is no other gospel except the one that proclaims this truth. The saving faith we see in Hebrews 11 was supplied, given, authored, founded, founded, implanted in a sinner by God. Sinners act according to nature unless God does something. And we are to look to Him, Jesus, because He is the very reason we're in the race to begin with. No Jesus, no race for me to run. Jesus didn't source the faith in me. I'm running my own race according to my own will, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not working, the sons of disobedience. That'd be the race I'm running. Highway to hell, baby. Was that Axel Rose? Who was that? Highway to hell? ACDC, sorry. That's the road I'm running. But God has been merciful to me, a sinner. God has been merciful to you, a sinner. Humans can believe, can confess Christ and even play religious games. But it's not saving belief. And they will not finish the race. And they will not endure. The book of John talks about true faith and false faith. In John chapter 2 it's introduced. Where John chapter 1, real saving faith is introduced. To as many as received him who believed in his name. They, became, they, they were given the power, the right to become children of God. Who were born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. But of the will of God. Saving faith. At the end of chapter 2. Jesus turned to many who believed in him. And would not entrust himself in them, would not entrust himself to them, because he knew what was in the heart of man. They believed. I thought as many who believed in his name gave the right to become sons of God. Born of God. And at the end of John chapter 2, what's introduced, and you see this, these, these thread of thoughts through the whole book of John, is true and false belief. You see it again in John chapter 8, where Jesus turned to many who believed in him, and at the end, they were stoning him to death. They were trying to stone him to death. This is critical for us to understand. Christians can have vain belief. They can start the race. They can confess Christ. But they will not endure in the race. And saving faith, contrast with that, are those who look to Jesus because he's the reason we are in the race and he is perfecting our faith along the way. This is why we're looking to him. God is so gracious that he gives us the faith and then works in us to perfect us over a lifetime. As we run, we are looking to the one who is perfecting our running. We're looking to him. He is perfecting my running. He's the author of my faith. He's the finisher of my faith. He's not just the author of our faith and then some sort of supplement to, for us. Like a, you know, you think about like a, uh, uh, what is it, a uh, moped where you start spinning the wheels and then, then they just take over. 
It's not that God just starts spinning the wheels and then the engine pops on and the engine just goes. And there is some truth. Our, our hearts are brought alive. But Jesus is the one that's continuing to fuel us and continuing to fuel us and perfect us. And we're going to see even discipline us at times as sons. And we get changed from one degree of glory to another. It's God who's empowering us. God didn't save you and give the Holy Spirit and say, now go out and try really hard. We're looking to him. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Of our faith, what, what was given to us, he starts it and finishes it. Friends, this is glorious good news. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we think about such things, as we're running our race, we're so thankful. We're so grateful for what he's done. It's just more and more motivation as we're looking to him, we're seeing him, and we're tuning in our binoculars to the, to the glory that we see there. And we are enthralled at who he is and what he's done. And part of that, the content of what enthralls us, the content of what, what encourages us, the holy dynamite that we see in Christ Jesus is, is the race that he himself ran. Because he ran the race marked out for him. Right, this, this is, look at verse 2 again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. What are we to set before us? Jesus, look, looking to Jesus. What did Jesus do? The joy that he saw on the other side of the cross, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He walked his road. He ran his race that was marked out for him. He endured it. He endured physical pain, Spiritual separation. The innocent one felt guilt and shame and wrath from his father. You know, theology proper is the study of the Godhead. You start thinking about all that was going on in Passion Week. God the Son experiencing wrath from God the Father. God the Holy Spirit helping all the complexities of, of the things that go in there mechanically and thinking about how all this could work and so much mystery is there. But what's plain and what's revealed is that Jesus had to endure the cross and he did so in joy. Jesus didn't become a sinner. He endured the cross with joy. He was obedient to the point of death. He was counted as a sinner. He didn't become one. That's so important. Especially in, in charismatic circles, there's an idea that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Missing the fact that it's a counting of righteousness. I'm counted righteous in Christ Jesus. I'm not actually righteous yet. I'm not perfect. I'm counted perfect. This is the paradox of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Is that... I, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus as Jesus was counted as a sinner. He didn't become a sinner. I am counted righteous. The day I die, I'm going to still have indwelling sin. I won't be perfect. And yet I'll be counted perfect. Counted as one who has the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced this spiritual pain. He experienced physical pain. Separation from the Father. And Jesus could have, he could have gotten out of it. 
He could have known what was coming in Jerusalem. There could have been this revolt. Jesus could have gotten out of it. But he marched there manfully doing what the Father had called him to do. He was marching to the epicenter of God's eternal wrath. Jesus was marching to hell's fury. This is the endurance that was required. He was marching there and he knew it. He was not caught off guard. He was not apprehended by men as, as somebody who just really wanted to get out of it but couldn't get out of Roman authority. He willingly walked to hell's fury. The eternal one faced eternal hell in temporal reality. Jesus faced in his body physical, conscious, bodily torment, spiritual and physical. That's what the wrath of God revealed looks like. You know, we don't talk about hell a whole lot. Differing people have differing views on hell. But in the church today, it's something that is not very uh, popular to think about what Jesus actually endured. And we read, endured the cross, despising the shame. We'll get to that here in a minute. What did he endure? Just the physical pain? Or just the spiritual pain? And as you look at the Bible and just take the biblical survey and systematize the passages on the cross, you see that Jesus actually experienced the wrath of the Father. Eternal hell, therefore, includes... Physical, conscious, bodily torment. We don't know all the details of that. And one way we can know this is because Jesus faced physical and conscious torment torment that was called the wrath of God. Jesus' body was spiritual and bodily, physical. He raised physically. Eternal life is physical. And so is eternal death. Friends, this is what Jesus endured. He endured wrath. Righteous, holy, pure, unstained wrath against sinners. That's what Jesus faced. That's what he endured. That was the road marked out for him. It's what Jesus suffered. The worst suffering in the history of mankind was not faced by those that were executed by him to his left and to his right. The worst suffering in the history of mankind are not those who have been burned alive or stretched and ripped apart limb for limb. It was not William Wallace as he was impaled alive. The worst suffering in the history of the world included both physical and spiritual suffering. And Jesus faced it. He set his face to Jerusalem and he marched right into it. He faced God's wrath For his bride. And he took responsibility for her. And he marched out of the grave. My dad's fired up. This is the king we serve. And we fix our eyes upon them. On him. We fix our eyes upon him. Jesus despised the shame. He experienced shame. He had never experienced that. The shame of what it feels like to do something sinful and just feel icky. You ever felt that? You're just like, ugh. Or look back in your life 
at some behaviors that you did or sins that you've dealt with, and you look back and you just like physically you're just ill. There's the shame of that. Gosh, I was an idiot. Why did I do that? How could I have done that? Why was that a part of my life? And every one of you look back on you look back in your life, and there's just shame. If you just everybody knew everything you've ever done, you'd just be like, but I'm glad they're awful too. It's just this ickiness that you feel about shame. And we know the first Adam and second Adam. And Adam turns to God. God, it's not my fault. It's my wife's fault. It's her fault. There's a grain of truth in that, isn't it? Eve was responsible for her actions. But as the federal head, it was his responsibility. Her fault, the woman you gave me, God, she did this. Really, you're to blame because you gave her to me and it's not my fault, God. Not my fault. And Jesus comes for his bride. And as they are sinning, he's like, I'll take your shame. I'll take it. He despised the feeling of the shame. Despised it. Oh, my heavenly father. I'm taking that shame. All the things you look back on in your life and you're just ashamed of. Jesus felt that. The innocent one felt that for you. God the Father taking His wrath out on you through God the Son. Jesus willingly for the joy that said, it's my joy to be blamed for the things that my wife did. It's my joy to take responsibility for her sin. That's you me and that's what jesus did and as we run we're looking to him jesus thank you thank you for your kindness thank you for your love for me he did it for us and now we're told that he's seated at the right hand of the father the joy that's set before him the suffering servant now enthroned God the Son, reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is on the throne. And what does the one on the throne do? Is His rule trustworthy? Is it sure? Can we trust Him and the answer is, you better believe it. We can trust his rule, his reign, his authority that he has in heaven and on earth. It's never been a good thing to oppose the living God, and it isn't a good thing to oppose the living God today. Jesus is on his throne in the heavens and the earth. And then we're told one more command that's going to end up our summary statement here in just a minute. Consider him. Consider him. Think about him. Think about Jesus. Consider him, we're told. Consider him, verse 3, who endured from sitters, sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, there's times that you grow weary and tired in your spiritual life, both physical and spiritual. If you've never experienced it, you're lying. If you think you'll never experience, you're lying to yourself double time. Where you're just dog-tired physically and spiritually. 
the battle of laying aside sin and running the race feels like I'm getting kicked in the teeth. It's hard. It's requiring endurance, and I'm tired. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to lock arms with me. I need to repent of this again. I need to come to Jesus again. I need to look to him. I feel like I need help even looking to him. And we're told to consider him, Jesus. And we're going to consider a few things that help us to not grow weary or faint-hearted. So when you're feeling weary, when you're feeling faint-hearted, here's some direction for you. Consider him who endured from, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. As Jesus was doing what he was doing for sinners, everything that Noah experienced in his mockery, as they mocked him, every single thing that he experienced from those decade on end, that they're like, so what are you doing? Building a lifeboat for your family? What are you doing? You're insane, oh righteous one. Noah gives us insight. What what is it to experience hostility against sinners? We think, boy, those that Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jews and the Sanhedrin, how could they do this to the king? You and I were in the crowd chanting, crucify him. This is what he endured against himself for the very ones he was doing it for. The mockery. Those standing outside the door or outside. Noah, you and your sons, you're idiots. Jesus, you're a fool. He endured that against himself. And uh, we've got to be careful as God's people to not preach the false gospel that says, oh, Christians, we weren't like that. We're the ones. We're the ones that weren't doing that to him. We're the ones that weren't hostile to our king. We're the ones who found our way. We're the ones who used our will the right way. Who chose Jesus. You'll never understand grace if you think that. Ever. Grace will be this ethereal thing that you say... You'll say the word, but you won't know what it means. We were hostile to him. And we're to think about him. This is content. This is information. This is theology that we need to think about, chew, drink in. This is where we need to dwell. Think about the cross. Find yourself daydreaming about the details of it. About how Jesus really is the true and better of all these ancient heroes. How all of us are walking this race that's marked out before us. But we're not walking this race the way Jesus did. Jesus did this thing perfect and he did it on my behalf. You know the race that I'm getting veered off on in this way and this way and sin that clings so closely. Jesus wasn't sidetracked by the accusations of the enemy, the lies of the enemy. He would answer back to the enemy, thus saith the Lord. It is written, it is written, it is written. He marched the road marked before him perfectly. He ran the race perfectly. And you and I, let's think about the fact that the race he ran is counted as my race. I get to to be included in his race. What he did, I get to be included in that. I'm counted as one who's lived the very way the Son of God has lived. Jesus did this to make sinners 
sons of God. Only, only sons can be disciplined by a father. And that's where we come next week. God the Father is our Father, and He disciplines His sons for their good. But we have to become sons, and Jesus is the one who made enemies, the ones that were accusing Him, the shame that He felt, He made them sons. And we are to consider that. Think about the mechanics. Think about the cross. Think about justice and law and righteousness and all that God has done. And friends, there's enough content there for you to never be bored. I'm telling you, you, we are going to be singing the praises of the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world for eternity, and it's never going to get old. You can't exhaust that. You can't run out of information to dwell on. There's so much of Jesus to see that we can look for all eternity and still not see everything. And we're consider him who did this so that... That, verse 3, consider him who did this so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As we consider him, we have strength to endure. It's motivation. If that's my king, I'm living for him. I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to run. I get my orders from him. What he says goes. God's word says is right. I don't argue with. I submit to him. Considering the work of Jesus gives us energy and a strong heart. You think about energy, we immediately think spiritual energy. But I'm telling you, if you'll grab hold and run the race, you'll, have, you'll be physically energized as well. God has a way of supernaturally, if our bodies matter. And we'll run the race that God has set out for us. We'll have physical energy, spiritual energy, fired up. Let's go. This king energy God gives. Strong heart. Instead of lacking energy and lacking courage, men and women who are considering him end up being men and women with strength, energy, and courage. And we look to Jesus, and he's the very one who gives us that. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. We have promises here. And friends, Jesus never breaks his promises. So now what? We're at our summary statement. We're at the summary bullet points, okay? And we're looking to Jesus along the way. Lay it down. Weight and sin. What, what weight and sin needs to be laid down? Lay it down. Big whoop. Lay it down. Run away from it. Run the race. The next right thing. What's the race? The next, th- next right thing to do. What's the race set before you? Well, what's obedience? 15, 20 minutes from now, what is it? I don't know. What's the next obedience? It's considering Jesus. Right now, what's obedience? The next right thing is the race, the road that's marked out for you. Run the race. As you're running, look to Jesus. Meaning you're going you're to take your mind and you're going to think about the cross. You're going to think about text and scripture. You're going to think about the glory of Jesus. That's what you're going to do. You're going to use your mind that God has given you. The Holy Spirit is going to help you even think at the heart level about the things of God. And as we're doing that, Jesus does his work. Jesus is working in us in power. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Jesus gives us strength to obey. And finally, consider him. And as we consider him, we won't grow weary in doing good. And we won't be weak, jellyfish, limp-wristed people. We'll be strong, courageous men and women at heart and in life.
Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your grace. We ask for direction and wisdom and strength. And we thank you for passages like this that fire us up. We thank you for godly men and women of old that we can look to and think, gosh, God, make me a man like that.